I remember at the beginning, uh, January 1st, I, I went back, looked at my quiet time readings. I record my thoughts every day when I read scripture and then I write some things and pray. And um, on January 1st of 2020, I said, oh, Lord, let 2020 just be the best year, you know. And, and here we are now. We're almost at the three quarter mark. Uh, at the end of this month, we'll be three quarters of the way through 2020. And here's what we can say so far. 2020 is a year for the history books. Is that true? I mean, it's, it's really, really something. I mean, 2020 started out with the Puerto Rico earthquakes in January. 571 earthquakes in Puerto Rico. Of course, you know, for our American-based news media, that's largely off our radar. So we don't hear anything about most of the tragedies that happen from our our uh, American-based news media. Um, things kind of stop in the contiguous United States. And 571 earthquakes in Puerto Rico. And then, of course, the spring tornadoes. There were 88 Midwest tornadoes in January alone. Uh, then there's the Yemen human humanitarian crisis. Again, one of those things not on our radar. It started in 2016. This is dubbed the greatest humanitarian crisis in our century. And uh, we're, we're still not hearing much about it, but, but millions of people displaced and uh, left without any real safety or protection. Uh, and then uh, there's the Midland, Michigan dam breaches that happened in May and flooded out two towns completely. Uh, there's wind storms in the Midwest, not tornadoes that have been as destructive as tornadoes. Uh, of course, the monsoon season has started, right? And so, again, it's in Asia that they get hit with these monsoons. But we have millions of people displaced by the flooding from these monsoons. And then there's the Atlantic hurricane season, which is already well underway. And uh, already we're seeing uh, damage happen from that. I don't need to tell you about the North American wildfire season. I think we're all uh, acutely aware of what's going on with that. And... Uh, I mean, the list doesn't stop there. Look, look, the civil unrest that exists in Portland that's been going on unabated for over 100 nights in a row, uh, uh, curbed only by the smoke, um, you know, that's a challenging thing. But it's, it's, a, it's unrest that's reflective of the, the profound division that's happening across our nation. And, of course, not, you know, last but not least is COVID. Oh, but there's more. We have a presidential election coming up. I'm sure that will be a peaceful transition, right? No matter how that goes, we can rest assured that we as Americans will take the moral high road and we'll all figure out ways to get along with each other and to appreciate one another's differences, right? Yeah, so we have better days to look forward to. Uh, November is going to be a month for the history books, I'm afraid. Now, what does all of this do for us? Well, there's this, this underlying sense of anxiety that we feel as, as we look at how much our world is in disequilibrium. 
What I'd like to say is that most of what's happening today is for the most part business as usual this side of eternity. This is what life deals out under the sun. But there are those particular moments when we feel the need more acutely than ever to say, where is God in all of this? And so today what I'd like to do is talk to you about who's really in control. Because we can get the feeling sometimes that nobody is in control. The mayor's not in control. The governor's not in control. So many people are telling us the president is not in control. Who is in control? God is on his throne. Now, if you don't remember anything from this message today, I want you to take that away. God is on his throne. It may not look like it, it may not feel like it, but trust me, nothing that we're experiencing now in this life under the sun negates the fact that God has, is on his throne, God has always been on his throne, and God will always be on his throne. And I want to look at three practical truths that give us reason to hope because of the fact that God is on his throne. Because God is on his throne, first practical truth, we are not alone. Because God is on his throne, we are not alone. It may feel that way sometimes. It may feel like the world is adrift without God being present. But trust me, God is on his throne and therefore we are not alone. I want to draw your attention to an Old Testament text. One of those great, poignant Old Testament texts from the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah 6 verses 1 and 2. It, um, here what we see is that um, Isaiah goes to the temple. It says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two they covered their faces, and with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. You can imagine what a scene that was, right? I mean, we're talking six-winged seraphim. They're like, I don't know, like giant, um, what are they, dragonflies or whatever, you know? I mean, but like human-like and weird, and, and that would be enough to catch anybody's attention. And here's what they said. They were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty, the whole earth is full of his glory. In the year that King Uzziah died, Isaiah was right where he should be. He was in the temple. See, when we find out, now who's Uzziah? Uzziah was the longest reigning king up to that point. He reigned 53 years. And um, now the last 10 years of his reign were a little bit sketchy because he... Uh, in a moment of pride, he went into the temple and burned some incense and the priests tried to rebuke him and, and get him out of there. And he started raging at the priests until 
a little forehead leprosy popped up and he went, oh my goodness, and they hurried him out. And from that point forward, he suffered with leprosy. And his son Jotham was co-regent with him for the last 10 years of his, his reign. But under Uzziah, uh, other than that big lapse, the, the biblical history remembers him as an otherwise righteous man who stayed on the right track. He had a lapse, don't we all, right? But, but he, uh, when, when he died, after 53 years on the throne, it put everything into question. What's going to happen now? What, where are we headed? And in the midst of that social, political unrest, Isaiah gets the unmistakable vision that God is on his throne. And he knew that we are not alone. God is on his throne. And therefore, we are not alone. Now, one of the uh, really cool things that we see in this text is that uh, God is ever-present. And we may not always see him. I mean, there is this great manifestation where God shows up and Isaiah sees it. But what that underlies is the fact that God is always there, even when we can't see him. Now, God in his grace manifested himself to Isaiah during that particular time. But the fact is, even if God hadn't shown up, it doesn't mean that God wasn't there. God is always there. You know, the, the Bible says that God will never leave us or forsake us. That's the promise of Scripture. That's in, that's in uh, Hebrews chapter 13. But, but here's the cool thing. I, I did a little research on that this week in preparation for this sermon. The first time that promise was uttered, it was uttered by Moses in Deuteronomy 31. And it was toward the end of his life. And God had already told him, you're not going to go in and, and, and uh, take the promised land. You're going to go up on the mountain. You're going to look at it, but you're not going to go in. And, uh, and Moses says to the children of Israel, be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or terrified because of them, because of all the people they were going to go into. For the Lord your God goes with you. He will never leave you nor forsake you. And two verses later, he turns and he says the same thing to Joshua. He says be, to Joshua, be strong and courageous for you must go with this people into the land that the Lord swore to their ancestors to give them and you must divide it among them as their inheritance. The Lord himself goes before you and will be with you he will never leave you nor forsake you. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. Because God is with us. We are not alone. Now in, in Hebrews 13, it's really interesting because the writer of Hebrews picks this promise up, but he applies it in an entirely different context. He takes this promise and, and the, the recipients of his epistle were not ready to go into the promised land. They were dealing with much more mundane issues like how do we manage our money? How do we trust God in, the, in this season of economic uncertainty, the 
Hebrews, to which the writer of Hebrews was directing his epistle, were suffering oppression from their own Jewish counterparts because they had decided to be followers of Jesus. And so people were boycotting their businesses. They, they were Families were cutting off their believing sons and daughters from their family inheritance. There, there was all this uncertainty as to what's going to happen. And God says, don't worry about it. I will never leave you or forsake you. And that promise went out to Christians at a very different kind of time and place. And what that underscores to me theologically is that this is a promise for all time. It was a promise that came through Moses to the children of Israel at a particular time. It went out to Joshua, but it goes out to us. God is on the throne and we are not alone. And so we should take great encouragement in that. Second practical truth. We go to a different text now. Uh, this, this is Philippians chapter 3. So I'm going to use three texts this morning. I got three points, all right? So three practical truths I'm drawing uh, from three texts that all in one way or another deal with the same kind of theme. In Philippians chapter 3, we learn this. Because God is on his throne, we are not at home. You know, um, this world is not my home. Uh, you know, I'm just passing. My heavens are laid up somewhere beyond the blue. I won't. I won't do any more. But the idea is that this this earth is temporary. Let's read Philippians three verses twenty twenty one. I'll read verse twenty first. But our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, what's the significance of this? But our citizenship is in heaven. Paul is using very particular terminology to these Philippians. Who are the Philippians? Well, they were living in the city of Philippi, obviously, hence the name. But one thing that was unique about Philippi is that it was a Roman colony. And everybody who was born in Philippi was automatically a citizen of Rome. Now that was a big deal back in that day and time. There are people who paid large sums of money to become Roman citizens. Paul was a, was a born Roman citizen. And, and you remember maybe uh, that time that he was, he was uh, taken captive by uh, one of the guards. And, and when he found out, when the guard found out that Paul was a Roman citizen, he said, I, I paid a large sum of money for my Roman citizenship. And Paul said, well, I was born a Roman citizen. They all ran, you know, it's like, woo, you know, a, a, a homegrown, a, a birthright Roman citizen had all the privileges and prerogatives of what Roman citizenship brought in that day and time. They were members of the empire, the ruling political force in the world at that time. So the Philippians, as you can imagine, took great pride in their citizenship. And Paul, to these Philippians, says, but our citizenship is in heaven. You know what he's telling them? He's telling them at the very least, you have dual citizenship. You carry two passports. 
but there's only one passport that will get you the ultimate passage, and it's not the one to Rome. Our citizenship is in heaven. Our primary citizenship is a heavenly citizenship. And that's as true today as it was then. And so I take great pride that I'm an American. I do. I, I am grateful to have been born and raised in the United States of America. I take great pride in that. But this passage tells me that my citizenship, my primary citizenship lies outside of any earthly kingdom. So at the very least, I have dual citizenship, but the citizenship that counts is my heavenly citizenship. Now, that should help us reprioritize some things when it comes to the truth that God is on his throne. God is the, the ultimate ruler, and we here are not at home. We inhabit a temporary existence. And I go on to Philippians 3.21. Who, by the power through Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control, will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. The hope of the resurrection. The reason why our heavenly citizenship is so important is because this side of eternity is all temporary. It's all preparatory for something much greater. And that, that much greater thing involves our being raised from the dead, our bodies being transformed into the likeness of Jesus' resurrected, glorified body. So this isn't just the body that Jesus appeared to his disciples. It is the body, but it, it not in the same form, right? So when Jesus was raised from the dead and he showed up in a closed room, uh, doors and windows locked, he appears, they, they kind of recognize him. And he shows them his hands and his feet. And he says, have a look. See, it's, it's really me. And then he ate some fish right in front of them. Then he disappeared. And then they said, did we, did we really see what we thought we saw? And they looked and they saw the fish bones. And they said, I guess we did. Did you eat that? No. So, but when Jesus ascended to heaven, he assumed his full glory. And in that, in that glorified state, we don't even know what that's like yet. John says that we don't know what that is like. But we know that when we see him, his second coming, we will be like him. We are, not a, we are not at home here. We are not at home. And that should change the way we think about things. Paul says in Romans 8, verses 18 through 21, he says, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration not by its own choice, but by the will of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. What Paul is saying in Romans 8 is that life this side of eternity brings unfair things to people who don't deserve it. Life this side of eternity brings death and decay and destruction Life this side of eternity brings social and political unrest. Life this side of eternity brings its share of tears. 
Life this side of eternity brings loneliness and destitution. Life this side of eternity is not our home. And we need to remember that because of what Jesus did, we've got a great hope beyond this life. God is on his throne. We are not alone. God is on his throne. We are not at home. And third and final practical truth is this. God is on his throne. We, listen now, we are not in charge. Oh, man, you know, just when I thought it couldn't get worse. Oh, but you got to admit, let's just step back, take a collective breath. Oh, we are not in charge. You know, there's something actually quite liberating about that when we think about it. You know, I'm, it's not about me. Hey, it's not about us. Do you know how much we fret and we get frustrated and, 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 uh, when things go wrong, we get all exercised about it. and We think, what's, what's happening here? Luke chapter 17, verses 20 and 21. Once on being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, Jesus replied, The coming of the kingdom of God is not something that can be observed, nor will people say, here it is or there it is. Because the kingdom of God is in your midst. Now, what's the, what's the context of that question? Well, the Pharisee implied in their question is, Jesus, you're not really the Messiah. Because the real Messiah is going to bring the kingdom. And the kingdom is something we're going to see. The kingdom is going to be the restoration of Davidic rule. The Messiah is going to come and sit on David's throne and, and will deliver us from the oppression of these pagan nations. And, and the Jewish people will rise once again to be the dominant world power. We will be in control. And Jesus said, no, 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 no. You, under, you misunderstand what the kingdom is. You, you're not even going to see it. In fact, it's right here. It's right here. And I'm sure those Pharisees were scratching their heads saying, where? What is he talking about? Because God is on his throne, we are not in charge, but we think we are. Our world thinks that human beings run the world. Our world thinks that human beings can manage the environment. Our world thinks that human beings can manage social justice. Our world thinks that human beings can control morality and can set the standard for what morality is and isn't. Our world says that human beings can redefine what, what is right and what is wrong. Our world believes that human beings are the ones who start wars and end wars. 
But the biblical worldview tells us something very different about God and how God runs this world. We don't see all of the ways in which God influences the world until we put on a different set of glasses, until we put on the eyes of faith. And then all of a sudden we can see that this invisible God, this God that doesn't seem to be involved or engaged in what's going on is actually integrally involved in everything. But not in the ways that we think. See, that's the that's the problem. We think, well, if God is all powerful, this is the question, right? If this is this is uh, the theological conundrum, right? The theological conundrum it can be can be stated in a syllogism. A syllogism, a syllogism is a is a logical tool by which we adduce what's logically consistent and inconsistent. It in- includes a major premise, a minor premise, and a conclusion. All right, so let's try to, let's reconcile this. You'll see what the problem is. Major premise. God is all-knowing and all-powerful. Minor premise. No, 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 let's do the major premise. God is supremely good. God is supremely good. Minor premise. God is supremely good and powerful. Conclusion, this God who is good and supremely powerful sees to it that nothing bad happens under his watch. And you say, well, wait a minute, that, <laughs> that conclusion isn't, isn't reality. The reality is that bad things happen to good people sometimes. The reality is that people can run amok and, and uh, set their own agendas in life and and can actually perpetrate great injustices upon people who don't deserve it. The truth is, the conclusion is that good people get sick and die, and sometimes they suffer miserably before they do. Philip Yancey uh, is uh, an author of, um, I think it's 18... Uh, no, he sold 18 million different books, author of 26 uh, Christian books. The The first one he wrote was Where is God When It Hurts? And that actually became one of his best-selling books. He also wrote one similar to that called Disappointment with God. And uh, so Yancey is somebody who spends a lot of time grappling with the, the theology of suffering and God's rule and whatnot. And um, he was... Uh, a guest speaker at a church in England back in 2015, and I watched the sermon on YouTube this week. Uh, it wasn't a sermon, it was an interview with Yancey and the senior pastor there. And, uh, and, and Yancey said that one of the big problems is that, you know, when things go wrong, people want to find the reason why it went wrong and who to blame for it. When things in our world go sideways, people want to look for why it happened and who's, who's responsible. But he said the Bible has a very different way of envisioning this. When, you know, Jesus was confronted with the blind man and uh, the, the disciples asked this bizarre theological question, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he would be born blind? I mean, just think about it, you know. How would he have sinned before he was born? Right? So why would he be, you know, receiving his just desserts for 
something he couldn't have done prior. And, uh, and Jesus didn't, didn't even go there, right? He didn't assign blame to anybody. He said, this is happening so that God's glory will be manifested. He was looking forward. When, when that tower in Galilee fell and killed those 500 people, and, and when there was the terrorist act in the temple, Jesus didn't focus in on what the cause was or who was to blame. He focused on how God would be glorified. It's a, it's a different paradigm, you see. When we find ourselves confronted with challenges like earthquakes and monsoons and tornadoes and COVID and civil unrest and elections, and our, our question shouldn't be, whose fault is it? Who can we blame for this? Because that betrays the assumption that we are somehow able to fix it. We are not in charge. And so if we know that we're not in charge, then we're absolved of the need to try and find blame or reasons or even thoroughgoing solutions to some of these things over which we have no control. So, acknowledging that God is on the throne and we are not makes us outsiders to a world that thinks that it's in control. I, um, I wanted to uh, uh, focus back on uh, something else as I conclude my sermon here. How am I doing with time? It's not terrible. It's 5, five to 11, not terrible. Honestly, I don't know when I started, so it could be, it could be terrible. I just, that's what happens. You get started and then you don't, you know, it's like, oh, that, that went really fast. And everybody else is like, yeah, uh-huh. Um, okay, so let me, let me ramp up to my conclusion here. Okay, so, you know, 2020 has been a nutso year, right? But in the grand scheme of things, it's no more nutso than any other year. I mean, with the exception of COVID, which comes around every hundred years or so that we have a world pandemic. But they happen, right? They happen. Uh, you know, it, it doesn't mean that God has somehow forgotten us. Wildfires happen. Civil unrest happens. Monsoons, tornadoes, earthquakes, these will all continue to happen until Jesus comes again. But God is on his throne. We are not alone. God is on his throne. We, we are not at home here. We're looking for our heavenly citizenship. This is just temporary. And because of that, we are not in charge. We're not in charge here. The kingdom of God is in our midst. God is ruling even when we can't see it or feel it. Later in that uh, sermon uh, or that interview with Philip Yancey, Philip um, talked about a car accident that he had. It was a rollover car accident in Colorado uh, and uh, caused him to question everything. It changed his whole paradigm of life. This isn't something that I, I don't think he's written much about, but but he had a rollover, it slipped on ice, it was in February, and his car spun out and it went down an embankment and it flipped over seven times. He was strapped in. He didn't realize how hurt he was until he got to the emergency room and they found out he had a broken neck. And uh, he said the doctor was terrible with bedside manner. Yeah, 
Hey, you got a broken neck. Well, you're not dead. And 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 uh, this this isn't the kind of broken neck because of where the break is that can kill you. I mean, uh, that can paralyze you. But it can kill you because it's right next to the carotid artery and uh, it's about ready to puncture it. And if it does, you're going to die. You're going to die. I mean, so uh, we're going to stabilize you. We're, we're going to immobilize your neck and head. And we're going to fly you to uh, Denver where they're going to do emergency surgery on your neck. Now, you may not make it. So if, if I were you, I would, I would call the people that you love right now and say goodbye to them. I mean, this literally happened. And, and he's like, are you kidding? Really? Is this really happening? I guess it is. And uh, so they had him completely immobilized except for his right hand so he could hold his cell phone and make calls to the people that he loved. And he said for seven hours before he went in for his surgery, he was lying there completely immobilized, not knowing whether he would live or die. And he said, in that time, three questions came to mind. Who do I love? Who am I going to call? This might be my last couple of hours of life. Who do I want to reach out to? Who is really important to me in my life? What have I done with my life? Second question. What have I done with my life? Third question. Am I ready to face what's coming? Who do I love? What have I done with my life? And am I ready to face what I'm coming? And what he concluded was that no matter where we're at, as we face this world of uncertainty, we should be living into those questions every day. We shouldn't wait until we're immobilized on what could be our deathbed before we start asking the questions, who do I love? What am I doing with my life? And am I ready for what comes next? At the end of the day, we live in a world that is filled with uncertainties. And this one thing we know for sure, God is on his throne. Because of that, we are not alone. We are not at home here. And we are not in charge. The real question for us today is, who do I love and how am I servicing those relationships? What am I doing with my life to make it count for eternity's sake? And at the end of the day, am I ready to face the King of Kings and Lord of Lords who's sitting on the throne? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your grace and your provision. Thank you for this day that we could be here to experience the grace of being in fellowship with each other. Thank you for your word, which is the lamp to our feet and the light to our path. And give us now the grace to understand how to live into the truth that you are on the throne. Help us to feel your presence, Lord. Help us to live with a sense of joyful anticipation of what's coming next. And help us to lean fully into your rule over this world so that we can live with a sense of participating in your rule rather than trying to fix this whole world ourselves. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.